Good morning, church. Uh, my name is Nathan. I get to be one of the elders and pastor here. And uh, would love for you to join us today. This is week 12 as we're going through the book of Galatians. And so in just a moment, we're going to look at that. So if you would, go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word to Galatians chapter 5. That's where we're going to be beginning today. Uh, if you're new in this room and we don't know you yet, we'd love to get to know you. There's a card in the seat back in front of you. You can fill it out and we promise to contact you in a respectful way. If you just drop it in the boxes on your way out that say give, you can drop it there and we'll contact you this week. Um, we're thankful that you're here. We've prayed about this service. We've prayed that we would make much of King Jesus and that everyone who comes and hears about him, that their hearts would be open, that our hearts would be good soil for receiving God's word. And so we want to continue that prayer as we read it today. And so as we read God's word, let's ask him to speak to us um, from Galatians chapter five, starting in verse one. Let's read this together. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness in Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. This is the word of the Lord. Now let's pray together. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that it would have its full effect in our lives. That as we receive it, that you would shape us. For those of us who may be clinging unbeknownst to us to anything other than Jesus, some mixture of our own works, I pray that you would just divide that and help us to put all of our faith in what you've accomplished for us. I pray that it would then have this result of freedom in our church and with every individual here, that we would have freedom that expresses itself in love and concern for one another in serving one another. And all of these things, Lord, I pray that you would be glorified, that your name would be lifted up, and that as we lift you up today, that you draw our hearts once again to yourself. And I pray this for your name, Jesus. Amen. It's uh, the season again for everybody getting together. Probably some of you have already gotten your gatherings onto the calendar, and you know when your family's getting together. And right after you accept the appointment on your calendar, the very next thing that we do as good Southerners is we ask the question, 
what am I going to bring to the party, right? That's the question. What am I going to bring to your house? And so every person is asking the question, when is it going to happen? But the second thing is, what am I going to bring? Some of you may be asking that question in a similar way as you come into this space today, wondering what it is that you have to bring to this gathering or to God himself or to just be part of this people. Maybe you're kind of on the outskirts of faith, and so you're wondering, what do I have to bring? Today we're going to look at a passage in Galatians um, this week 12, as I already mentioned, where Paul is basically saying you cannot bring anything to this gathering. There is nothing that you can bring to it. In fact, if you mix some self-effort in with this freedom that's been purchased for you through Christ, then you're going to miss all of it. So just to recap, Paul had come to this city proclaiming the message of Christ to salvation and he'd given them a clear view that the only way to come to Christ was through bringing their need to him and him bringing his supply to them. There was no other way, no other mixture. And so the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is our sin and that's what makes it necessary. That's what Paul had brought to this group of people. The only thing you have to offer is your need. Then there were the other people, these Judaizers, that had come in with another message that said, okay, yes, Jesus is great, and he brought you salvation, but you've got to add something to it. And so God comes in with this message through Paul where he's saying, look, there's two messages. Only one of them is true, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The reason he's writing this letter is to confront and correct the misguiding that somehow we might bring something to add to what Jesus has done for us. There is nothing that we can do to repay the debt that he's paid for us. There's nothing that we can do to add to what Christ has done. And so there's all of these potential ways that we might get distracted with things. And these group of people, this group of people had begun to waver in their understanding of the gospel. And he's saying, I'm confident that you're not going to receive any other gospel than this. And he begins to round the corner. He's been going through what the doctrine of grace is for all of the the first four chapters, and now he's beginning to explain, this is what freedom looks like, okay? Do not be confused about what freedom is, and the result is this. This is the conclusion today and where we're heading for the next several weeks in Galatians. True Christian freedom results in love that resembles Christ. That's what freedom looks like. It doesn't look like any kind of slavery that you could pay back the, the debt that's been paid for you. It looks like a kind of love that Christ has demonstrated towards you, it begins to permeate our lives. And so the outline is this. We're going to look at what it means for us to stand firm in this freedom, and then we're going to consider what Paul's warning was to them, that we might also be warned, and what we can learn from a warning. And then the conclusion is that gospel freedom always results in love. So first, what does it look like to stand firm? He starts out with this command, and it comes with an assumption and a declaration about what Christ has done for us. Look at verse 1 again. For freedom, Christ has set us free. In other words, here's the purpose of your freedom, that you would be free. So, stand firm in this freedom and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A few observations about this command for us to stand firm. First, the purpose of Christ's salvation that he's brought to everyone who has believed is this, that we would be free. That is the purpose of our salvation. He wants us to be free from the burden of the law, from the burden of sin, from the guilty conscience. What are we freed from? We're, we're free from guilt. 
from all the demands of God's law that would say you're guilty, it means that now we've received something we could not possibly earn for ourselves, God's favor. It's freedom from the law's demands for justice, from our experience of guilt because of not living up to it, that ultimately the trial for our life is completely finished through the punishment that's been rendered and God's justice towards Jesus. So we gladly receive these things. John, John Scott, uh, Stott, and I'm going to quote him a couple times because he just tends to say things better than me. Um, he describes his freedom in this way. The Christian freedom he describes here is freedom of conscience, freedom from the tyranny of the law, the dreadful struggle to keep the law with a view to, of winning the favor of God. It's the freedom of acceptance with God and of access to God through Christ. In other words... We're free from this tyranny so that we might receive two things. God's acceptance of us, not based on anything that we could do, and access to him throughout this life that begins now. Not just in the future when we get to see him face to face, but right now. So we have acceptance based uh, only on God's demonstration of his affection towards us. As it's described in Romans chapter 5, this is the demonstration of God's love, that while we were still enemies, that Christ would die for us. It wasn't waiting on us to clean up our act, and so it's not waiting on us now to give us some other understanding of God's love. We get God's affection, and we get access to God. And so if this is God's purpose in our freedom, that we would stand firm in it, what does it mean for us to stand firm in this reality? Well, I have a few things that I think it can mean. I believe he means that we have to receive certain things. We've got to reject certain things. And then we have to keep reminding ourselves of what we're receiving and what we're rejecting over and over and over. First, what do we receive? Regularly receiving and reminding ourselves that this is the truth. This is what we've embraced about God through Jesus Christ. We cannot be burdened again by it because we're receiving on a regular basis that this freedom came to us as a free gift. The second part is that we would not just receive, but we reject something. So do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. So we regularly have to reject something in order to stand firm in it. We're saying we do not want to be slaves again. Listen, my boys have regularly brought home creatures that they want to make into their pets, okay? Every single time they have some cage, some box that's captured like a turtle, a lizard, a frog, a raccoon, or a chipmunk. All of these things have been brought home saying, can we keep it? Can we keep this thing that we've captured? And the regular test of whether or not we can keep it is whether or not it wants to stay in the cage when they open it up, okay? So for those of us who are Christians, the same opportunity awaits. It's like there's been an unlocked key to what was holding us in tyranny. And Christ is saying, do not be subject again. Don't walk right into the cell that you just walked out of. Don't walk back into it. Do not submit again. Reject this demand that maybe we could possibly contribute something to our salvation. Reject the fear of condemnation. The only way to approach Christ is with confidence that he paid the price. 
if you're approaching, even today, if you come into this room wondering, like, what does God think of me? I'm not so sure that he likes me. If that's where you're coming from, I want you to embrace this gift from Christ. This is what he offers, to come with confidence, knowing that your conscience is sprinkled clean, not because of what you've done, but because of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we come with no fear of condemnation. We come with no uh, submitting again to slavery, rejecting any yoke of slavery. So why do we reject this? Well, ultimately, if you add anything to Christ, it ruins all of it. That's what he's about to say through the rest of this chapter. Now, I'm getting ahead of myself, but myself. But one thing I want to say before I move to the third part of standing firm is that any there's many times and in many ways there are everyday little s saviors that are offering us some hope of potentially making ourselves more pleasing both through one another or through something that we could do. And and maybe there's some answer to the question, what could help me right now that's other than Jesus Christ? And Paul's exhortation to this group of people to stand firm is to look at all of those other offers, all the other plans that maybe we could help ourselves or maybe there could be some way that we find deliverance from whatever grief we're in, from whatever trial or addiction we're in. And he's saying ultimately the only deliverance, that true deliverance will come through Christ and Christ exclusively. The most important deliverance of all, our salvation, only comes through Christ. The third thing he says about standing firm is that he describes how they stand. They wait with eagerness. Look at verse 5. For through the Spirit by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Through the Spirit. That means that God is giving us what we need right now by His presence and by His power in the moment that we're living in. If your faith is in Christ Jesus, He's giving you Himself to sustain you while you wait. If you're believing that you in Christ Jesus, then you have the very Spirit of God And through that, we wait by faith. That means that we're resting and acting based on what Christ has done for us, not based on what we could do for him. We eagerly wait. We wait with anticipation and hope that the righteousness that's been promised to us through Jesus Christ, that we see in part right now, we've been given this through Christ, one day we'll see it completely, wholly. Once again, John Stott, for this future salvation, we wait We do not work for it. We wait for it by faith. We do not strive anxiously to secure it or imagine that we have to earn it by good works. Final glorification in heaven is as free a gift as our initial justification. So by faith, trusting only in Christ crucified, we wait for it. So how do you stand firm? How do you do this? Number one, you have to continually receive the message of the gospel and of freedom that only comes through Christ. Number two, you've got to reject any, any potential yoke, any burden that promises you some hope that was meant to be found through Jesus Christ. And third, we've got to wait with eagerness and hope that Christ will one day deliver us completely from the things that are tripping us up today. Okay, so how do we stand firm and why is it so important? Well, Paul is about to describe to them a very severe warning. It's like, look, it's real important that you stand firm. And he begins to describe the path that they could potentially take that would be in addition to Jesus. He's going to say, here's what lies down the road. Sometimes we need the path that we're about to take described to us. You know what I mean? 
<laughs> just a few weeks ago, I was traveling down a road that I thought I was familiar with, and there was a sign that said, bridge is out, road is closed. I'm like, I've been down this road before. I'm sure it's no big deal. Through traffic, they probably can get through. Besides that, I drive a truck. What? I can get through here. All the signs were saying, you cannot go this way. And along with me, there were several others that tried it, and we all were turning around and going the other way when we got to the bridge that was definitely out. In the same way, Paul is saying, look, this is not a potential route. Sometimes we need the kind of warnings that can describe our future if we continue to reject the promise of Jesus Christ. And that's what he does. And look, Paul's warning in this passage is as strong as anything else in the entire book. He's already called the Galatians fools. He's already told them they need to repent. And now he's going after the people that's misled them. And he describes them in a very graphic way, what, they needs, to, what needs to happen to them. Verse 2, it says, Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he's obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. You who would be justified the law, you've fallen away from grace. So a few ways that he warns him, warns them of the path that they're on. He's saying, look, you need to be warned because the path that you're looking down eventually Christ will be of no advantage to you. In other words, all that Christ has offered you freely by his grace, be warned that if you mix anything else with it, he himself and what he's done is going to be no advantage to you. That's the first warning. His sacrifice cannot be insulted by us thinking that we can repay it or add to it. Second warning, he says, you're obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, you know it's impossible. If you start down this path, you're going to have to do everything that the law demands, and there's no way that you can possibly fulfill all of that. So be warned. That's not the path you want to take. Third one, you're going to be severed from Christ. In other words, you're going to be amputated from this body of Christ. It's a way of saying, I'm no longer part of him and what he's accomplished. I'm trying to go on my own. And he describes it as being severed. And last, he says, fallen from grace. This, is, does, this does not mean that someone lost their salvation. Um, because if you're sealed by the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus, you're sealed forever. What it means is that they've, they've abandoned the way in which they would be saved for some other way. that is no other way. So if you do this, you're going to have to keep the whole law. If you do this, you're going to be severed from Christ. If you do this, you're going to be falling away from the only means of salvation, grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. So before I move on, I want to make a few observations just about warnings, okay? The Bible is full of warnings, and they're not, like, they're not just kind of isolated to the Old Testament. Some people like to think of the New Testament as like, it's all just grace, grace, grace. And it is through Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean that there aren't places where it's like, don't be an idiot. Do not fall away from the truth, okay? And so the New Testament is full of these kind of warnings. few things. First, Paul corrects them with a complete confidence. Look, you cannot correct in this way if you don't have confidence in what you're talking about. He was dogmatic because he believed there could be no other mixture. He believed that this was dangerous for their own souls. He warned them with confidence. And he was willing to do this because he believed not only their lives were at stake, even worse, their salvation was at stake. And we, as God's people, can resemble this. 
When we're confident of the truth, we speak it truthfully to one another. We step into places that are very uncomfortable to warn one another and say, this is not true. This is the truth of God's word. Second thing about this is that he did it as an expression of love, not only for the truth, but for this group of people. Paul continues with this correction of false teachers and perhaps the most aggressive correction that he's made. Because, And the reason that he's so aggressive about I wish they would be emasculated is because he loves this group of people. And he sees their message as a threat to their unity and to their salvation. And if you love a group of people, I want to tell you, like that, uh, that whole idea of mama bear, you see, see a mama come out when their kid is threatened, right? All is fair, but then suddenly, if you see, you see somebody messing with your kid, you're like, don't mess with them. And why is that? It's not because you hate the other person. It's because you love the person that you love. And Paul's love and affection for the church led him to a place where he'd say, look, these people... God's going to deal with them. It's not up to me to deal with them. God's going to deal with them. I'm pretty sure that's the most harsh thing Paul says in his ministry that we have reported here, right? (laughs) Like, it's pretty harsh. He's basically saying this bad idea, it has to be stopped. It cannot be reproduced. And then he's confident that they will take no other view. The other thing I want to point out about his warning is the idea of persecution. We mentioned last week that if you're born to Christ, you immediately, like if you're a son of Abraham and you're Isaac, you already have an Ishmael that's looking to destroy you, that's threatened by your freedom. And in the same way, he's saying, look, if I was adding circumcision to Christ, then people wouldn't have this need to persecute me. Now, he mentions this in verse 11. He's saying, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I want to point out two things about this. In his warning, he's saying, I'm still being persecuted, and the cross is still offensive. Okay? There is a place for the gospel to be offensive. And here's, here's how it's offensive. It's exclusive. It's saying there's no other way by which any person can be saved but through Jesus. And if you take away the exclusivity of Christ, it's no longer offensive. You ever notice that? Like if Jesus is just one among many, people are totally okay with you being a Christian. They're just totally fine with it. If you have Jesus plus like being a good citizen and all the other things that go along with it, people are okay with you being a Christian. Paul's saying the reason that I'm offensive is because I'm saying, no, it's only Jesus. That's the only thing. And so I want, I, I want to point this out because um, we need people like this in our life. We need people who will step into the mess of our life and warn us. I've seen the end of this road that you're going down and the bridge really is out, okay? We need people that can say, look, there's like a potential destination that you're trying to get through this way. (laughs) This is not the route. We need folks like that. And we need to be able to receive people like this into our lives that can warn us and who can receive being warned. Because, look, there is no time in the history of Christianity where the exclusive message of Christ was not offensive. 
There was no time in history when Jesus being the only way to salvation was not offensive. Why is it offensive? Well, it kind of puts at odds all of the efforts of our flesh. If you're attempting to be happy, to be fulfilled in any other way, and someone says, listen, that's not going to work, that's offensive because we're really attached to our idols. The reason that Christ is so offensive is because we become attached to everything less than him that promises things only he can give. Now, he goes forward and basically says, the rest, and, and the rest of this whole book moves from, don't believe the wrong thing. Don't be under this yoke of slavery. And then he begins to describe what freedom looks like. He says, this is what it looks like to be free. So many times we remain in slavery because we don't know what freedom could be like. We're like, well, what does that mean? If God accepts me, not because of what I've done, but because of what he's done, does that mean like I can just do whatever I want? Well, he's about to describe it. Last point, and I want to make a few observations about it. Christian freedom always results in love. That's the result of true freedom. He describes this in a couple of ways. Now, for those that have received Christ as their only hope, the result will be that they're overwhelmingly, just abundantly filled with love. We just prayed about this in that prayer of generosity. God is making us generous because he's generous. He's making us loving because he's been loving towards us. The result will be love in the life of believer. Love for God and love for one another. Love for God means that you're going to um, desire holiness. You're going to desire the things that please him. He's saying, look, nothing else counts except for love. Galatians 5, 6. It'll be on, actually, I don't know if it's on the screen, but I want to read it again. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Uh, I can imagine that the first people reading this letter that had already been circumcised before the letter came were like, oh no. <laughs> and he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. Okay, neither one works for anything. It's basically you love God and you love other people because of what God has done for you, not because that will somehow win you his approval. So how are we supposed to express this freedom? We're supposed to express it by faith working through love. That's what freedom looks like. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not let your freedom be an opportunity for the flesh. That's what uh, verse 13 says. So he's first going to say, this is not what freedom is. And this is what it is. What is it not? First, it is not an opportunity for selfishness. It's not an opportunity for the rest of your life to be me time because of what God has done for you. It's an opportunity to express what Christ has done for you through the way that you live in the world. Not an opportunity for selfishness. It's not an opportunity for sin. People who are really free in the truest sense don't see their freedom as an opportunity to indulge their sinful desires. Listen, several people, even within the church, maybe especially within the church, have a misunderstanding of grace in that it leads to a type of licentiousness, okay? Here's what I mean. You ever heard somebody say, well, I don't have to do anything to earn God's favor so I can do everything I want. We got a little understanding between me and God. 
Maybe you haven't heard anybody express it that way explicitly, but you've seen their lives and it looks like they're just living on the grace card. Just put it on the grace card. I'll just do whatever I want with whoever I want. That is not an expression of true Christian freedom. True freedom has restraints, but they're not external. They're internal. They're motivated from love. 1 Peter 2, 16 describes it this way. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. In other words, Christian freedom is not without restraint. It's, with, it's a restraint that comes from within, that's motivated by love for God and for one another. It's, a freedom to, it's the freedom to say to your selfish impulse, nah, I'm good. My true desires are satisfied. It's a freedom to say to yourself, when you crave things that will not be good for you, I'm, I'm okay. God is ultimately satisfying me. It's a freedom to, to look at other people and not see them as a burden, but as a gift. The second part of this freedom is that there's always going to be relational consequences to the indulgence of the flesh. He goes on to say, look, love your neighbor, but don't bite and devour one another. That means that parents with kids, kids with parents, siblings with one another, co-workers, teammates, community, bosses, when our freedom is used in the way that God wants our freedom to work, it expresses itself in love, in generosity. The true test of freedom is not what you get to do to serve yourself, but how you use the freedom as an opportunity to love and serve others. And he knows that this would be a temptation. <laughs> he knows it. Because we tend to swing like a pendulum, right? Okay, I don't have to do anything so that God will love me. Okay, I'm going to do anything I want. And he's saying, no, no, no that's not the way to understand it. The, all of the commandments, all of the law can be summed up in this primary commandment. To love God, love one another. Christian freedom transforms the way that we see one another. Freedom to serve. Previously, maybe you lived by outward restraint, the fear of punishment, the motivation of reward. Many, many holy things have been done from those motivations. Many things that will count for nothing when it comes to God's throne. But true freedom is not constraints but an offering of love towards God and towards one another. And it comes down to this first commandment, to love God. The second is like it. Jesus said, to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what freedom looks like. Romans 13 says, the whole law can be summarized this way. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. It's on the screen. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love for God it constrains us to obedience. It gives us a love that we have to give to others. And so I want to say where I began, true Christian freedom results in a love that resembles Christ. And so I want to end with this question. Am I free? Am I truly free? Am I free from striving? Am I free from measuring myself? Am I free from 
arguing? Am I free from needing the best and the most of something? Because if God will come and satisfy your soul with what he alone can give, there's an abundance you didn't have to work for. It was truly free to you. And when we receive that, we don't walk around wondering about our guilt. Are we enough? And can other people affirm that I'm okay? The, the primary question of our soul has been answered. And so we're free to enter into the world differently. As the hymn writer said, my faith has found a resting place, not in device or creed. I trust the ever-living one, his wounds that plead for me. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That's enough. And in the same way that Paul is entering and engaging with this group of people, he brings this same message. Christ brings the same message. There's two ways. You can, be lived, you can live motivated by fear and under this yoke and burden of slavery or truly free, embracing what Christ alone did for you and it changes everything. And so I want to urge you today to live from that place of faith. In Hebrews chapter 10, my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, <laughs> but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So hear the warning. Do not shrink back. Walk forward in faith with no mixture or confusion about what Christ has done for you or what you might pay back to him. That will ultimately lead to those that bite and devour one another, to human conflict. So much of human conflict has at its root this lack of belief that Christ is enough. So much of the absence and the bankruptcy of love is not trusting what Christ has done for us. I love the story in Luke chapter 7 where, where Jesus is just being worshipped by this sinful woman and people are like, what is it with him? Doesn't he know she's a sinner? And he tells this story of two money lenders, or, or, or two people who owe money, two debtors. He says, one owes 500 denarii, the other 50. And when they could not pay, the person they owed the money to canceled the debt. And he asked them, which of them will love him more? Which will love him more? Some of you are bankrupt when it comes to generosity towards others and love for God. And I fear that maybe it's because you're busy trying to work for something that God intended to give to you. You don't want debt to be settled that easily. So be warned today. Be warned. If there's any mixture of something that you're trying to contribute to this gift that God offers to you, it will corrupt it. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you can receive it, it will lead to worship. It will lead to someone who feels the great gratitude of a debt that they couldn't possibly contribute to. And I want to ask you, who will love him more? Someone who thinks that maybe they could repay him or add to it. Or maybe their debt isn't so great. Or the one who knows the great debt and sees the great price that was paid. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that you'd make us so full of love, standing firm in our freedom that you've purchased for us. 
Pray that we do this faithfully today and celebrate the great gift of grace that you've given. And I pray this for the sake of your name, Jesus. Amen.